Listen up, Bobcats, because it's time for Overtime Radio, the place for high-energy sports takes and debate. Here's your hosts, Tom Krasnowski and Jordan Wolfe. Welcome into Overtime Radio. I'm Tom Krasnowski alongside Jordan Wolf. Thank you for joining us here on this Friday, April 9th, 2021. I've returned as host. Jordan did a great job holding down the fourth the last couple of weeks. Good job, buddy. Had a couple of guests on there. Always fun. I'll have a couple of uh, commitments and always holding down the fourth. Excellent job. And we were off last week for Easter, Passover, various uh, spring uh, holidays. Uh, favorite aspect, Jordan, of, uh, of, of these spring holidays. What do you got? Well, I didn't necessarily get to celebrate Passover this year, but one of my really favorite thing about it is, is besides the fact that you get to spend with family and stuff like that, uh, the food, the food and really what you eat for me, uh, you got the matzah. I'm one of the only probably Jewish people you're going to find that really likes matzah because you can't mm. eat bread. I really like being with my family. I really like finding the Afi Komen and just the food is excellent. And uh, I appreciate all the nice words about my hosting. I just realized that in the document, I said four eight and four ten, so that's a bit of a, a gap on you me. You also wrote the year as twenty twenty, which oh, I think yeah. is a more egregious yeah. error. But we had one really good week, and then as I'm preparing the document, we we write April eighth yeah. and April tenth. We don't actually write the right date. But anyway, to answer your question about the uh, holiday uh, Passover, is just it's fun with family, and for me, it's easily the food that I get to eat. So, you know, I gotta agree. Easter's pretty similar. I mean, obviously, it's a it's a it's an important religious day as is Passover, but family is also uh, a centerpiece. I mean, it was pretty local this year, just the immediate family due to all the uh, COVID stuff, but that's all you, that's really uh for this year, all you need, uh, you know, it's a lot of fun. You get to have food. You don't have any other time of the year, uh, you know, some nice hams, some uh, pierogies. You've got all sorts of good stuff, uh, you know, there to celebrate on Easter. And there's always sports too. There's usually hockey playoffs this year, just the regular season. Baseball on Easter. There's always some sports going on too, which is fun. But um, you know what else we had, Jordan, uh, this last week? We had the wrap-up of March Madness. And uh, why don't you get into that here? Because, you know, I have a vested interest in uh, who ended up being the winner. Yeah, you do. I'm sad it's over because it was an absolute electric tournament, but we are now at the conclusion of the 2021 NCAA tournament, just like I just said, and it lives up to expectations and then some. This time, we have another new winner in the Baylor Bears, won the NCAA championship for the first time program history, and Tom, you've had a special liking to them all yes. this season, so what about this team brought them all the way to the top? Sick them, as the Baylor Bears say. Sick them. Um, Baylor Bears, they are a team that, for me, just exemplified um, success in March Madness basketball. They have athletic guards that can both hit the three and defend the perimeter very well. Uh, Butler and Mitchell, those guys have NBA futures ahead of them. Their bigs weren't quite as good as Gonzaga's bigs, admittedly. But the other thing about Baylor is the bench is very strong for them. They have that one kid, I forget his name, honestly, but he's the one that has the long the long hair and the kind of the bull cut in the front. They got a couple of bench guys. They really helped them beat Houston, uh, pull away in that game when the starters, Mitchell and Butler, came out. And it showed against um, Gonzaga that they had that big lead, and they maintained it to some extent the entire time. That's a strong bench. That is, 
you know, a rotation that Gonzaga just couldn't match. Baylor, to me, like I said, I think they just exemplified what success in March Madness uh, looks like. And uh, they, they just had a little bit of everything. I, I really liked Baylor. And I also really liked getting paid $231 uh, for winning my uh, very first NCAA tournament uh, pool. Uh, I've won like the one in my immediate family before, like, like or like, uh, you know, five person leagues, but this is a 30 person pool. I had no chance I was ever going to win this one, but I had a big payday from that. And Jordan, your bracket didn't quite turn out so sweet. Yeah. Guess who I picked Ohio state, Alabama, Illinois. What do they all have in common? They all lost big time. So that was wonderful for me. But what yeah, I that's how I feel every year when I used to pick Michigan State. Yeah, and they would blow it every year. Michigan State because Tom Izzo every single year has a really good regular season team and they get into the playoffs and they just cannot do anything right. So that's why I never pick Michigan State. But besides the point, uh, Baylor just looked outstanding. They they in the final four just brought their game up to a whole nother level. They romped a team like Houston, who was giving a lot of teams other problems all season long. And then they go against Gonzaga and give them their worst loss of the season, their hardest game of the season, besides the these we're going to talk about in a second. But my goodness, um, that guy Butler, like Baylor wasn't missing. Like they weren't missing any of their shots. And the key to being Gonzaga is you got to hit every single shot that you make, because if you don't, then Gonzaga is going to just hit more. That's how dominant they were this season. But my goodness, ba- Baylor deserves all the credit. Uh, Scott Drew, been the coach there since 2003. He's the guy that finally gets a championship. He so passionate about bringing Baylor a title. Now they have it. And uh, uh, as, as they were doing college game day, going to go a little, oh, sick bears. So as he just did, uh, I love that chant. It's a fun chant. A couple, um, couple of news and notes from that game. You know, the field goal percentage was kind of average, honestly. Uh, 30 for 67, that's 45%. The key for Baylor, though, three-pointers, both offensively and defensively. 43.5% they hit. They also held Gonzaga to just 29.4% um, from three. That was a big one. Um, turnovers also. Gonzaga put the ball on the ground 14 times. I would be willing to bet that's probably a season high, or at least in the top three. They don't turn the ball over too much. And uh, Baylor completely... I know I said that um, I liked Gonzaga's bigs a little better than Baylor, specifically Timmy, but Baylor had 16 offensive boards in that game and out-rebounded Gonzaga by 16. So even though I think Gonzaga had the better big men on paper, Baylor showed up on the glass to turn into second chance points. They really had the perfect strategy, I think, to win this one. They played the perfect game, which is what's required to beat the perfect team, as you and I, as Giants fans, know a thing or two about. You, don't, you might not always be better than the 16-0 New England Patriots or the 31-0 uh, Gonzaga Bulldogs, but if you know how to uh, – if you play that perfect game, anything can happen, and that's exactly what happened. Well-coached and guys who completely bought in. Yeah, teams. oh, for sure. Uh, again, now Baylor is another one of those teams that I think after this title win is going to put themselves on the map, and I don't know if they're going to get to the same heights next year, but they're certainly in the running too. So sure. how about we talk, we touch on the other final four game, not much to touch on with Houston. Honestly, um, they, they got beat quite frankly. Um, and they, uh, oh, they struggled with Rutgers. They've had some issues this tournament anyway, like they haven't been the, as dominant as they should have been uh, at some aspects, but we got to talk about UCLA Gonzaga because that was an all-time classic. That was some are saying the best game in college basketball history. So I'd have to look, I'd have to look into the history on that. I know Villanova's in there. I know that um, Villanova UNC, and then you have uh, NC State game where, with Jimmy Valvano when they won the championship, and then Duke Christian Leitner. That's also another one. So yeah, there's also a memorable final with um, 
with with Georgetown in the '80s. There's been a lot of good basketball games over the years. I mean, hey, even the Christian Leitner shot. Uh, that, that's a big time moment. But regardless, Gonzaga and UCLA. I thought I was going to lose my $231 then because Gonzaga, after winning that game, the vibe for a lot of people was they're never going to lose another one at this point. Uh, how about the performance from uh, UCLA? Guys like guys like Juzang and uh, ultimately, though, just undone by an even better performance from Jalen Suggs. And uh, again, UCLA, the interesting thing is they have all this history. They just haven't had the performance lately, but this was a miracle run. I felt so bad that it had to end like that. Me too. Uh, Mick Cronin, New Jersey guy, just got an extension after all this. UCLA played one of the best pure heart and passion games I've ever seen. Johnny Juzang, first of all, leading scorer in the NCAA tournament. Guy scores about, what, 30-35? Every time UCLA needed a bucket in that game, he was the guy to go to. And then when he didn't get the ball, who was the other guy to get it? Jaime Jaquez Jr., making threes from the corner. Absolute flaw on top of his head, looking fantastic in that game. And then uh, another guy that we didn't see coming, uh, Riley, I forget his first name, but he was making all these ridiculous jump shots. And then what we have to talk about was the ending sequence. I mean, first of all, Johnny Juzang going coast to coast, gets his own rebound, makes the layup. Then Jalen Suggs, who we've all known is such been a, such a prominent player all season long, shows you that he's also a really clutch player with an absolute ridiculous shot from half court to send them the win. I, I reacted in a very um, loud way in, in my friend's basement when I was back in New Jersey. For uh, I'm pretty ball. sure everybody did. We were all watching it together. It was an unreal moment watching that game from start to finish. I just had a feeling when I started that game, I'm like, this is going to be a fantastic game. Like, I, like, this is what March Madness is all about. And this game, I will always remember forever because I watched it live. I appreciate it. I know what it's about. I should have watched more of the Villanova UNC game. I don't know why I didn't back then, but this one, I remember from start to finish. I know everything. And yeah, just classic game. And I just explained to you why. So there was a great moment uh, on air on NHL Network where uh, Tony Luffman, he's the uh, UCLA guy, oh, he okay. reacted in a big way when that shot came down, that that um, that layup to tie it late. And then the, he just ended up on the ground <laughs> when, when Suggs hit that shot. Guys across all sports, there's just – it had a massive impact, even the hockey guys getting in on the fun there. But again, in that game, I think symbolic of what basketball has become. In that game, UCLA, the losing team, shot 57%, 34 of 59, and Gonzaga, 58%, 37 of 63. It was a shootout. And the three-pointers as well, UCLA almost at 50% from three. This was, this was a shootout game. The fact that Suggs made that shot look so easy, uh, it is definitely something he's practiced before. Like, it is, again, the evolution of basketball and the fact that a shot like that previously would have been a heave and a prayer. Nowadays, it's a shot that is it, it's makeable for some of these guys. Suggs made it look easy. In fact, that UCLA shot 57% and nearly 50% from three and still lost the game. Basketball, the skill level of these shooters these days is just incredible. That, that was a game of modern basketball, for oh. sure. It was brilliant, man. It was, and then the call with Jim Nance and Bill Raftery with the kiss and everything and the onions and all that. And then Grant Hill just being the straight man throughout all that. It was just a great combination of everything. And then Sugg standing on the table. And then, uh, again, just heartbreak for UCLA. The fact that Johnny Juzang's brother came all the way from Vietnam to come watch his brother play and then had to see that. That I really feel bad for. But, I mean, uh, this is a game I'll never forget. For sure. For sure. Uh, one more NCAA basketball note before we move on. We should mention Roy Williams, and that's his retirement from UNC. This is a team that's in a bit of transition. Um, they were not one of the top seeds this year. I believe they were a nine seed. They're out in the first round. 
But Roy Williams, of course, is a uh, historically great coach. And I'm actually going to be very interested to see what happens out of this now with, yep. uh, with UNC. Because these all the Blue Bloods, as they are called, they're all in transition. And this guy's been with two of them. He's in Kansas as well, who you know, I consider them part of the Blue Bloods with Kentucky and, uh, and yep. others. And they're all in transition, so to speak. It, it's, really, it's really interesting. I wonder who might get that gig. But congratulations <laughs> to Roy Williams, who's been a historically great coach. Absolutely. I mean, he is a guy that has just embodied college basketball and has really led some great teams to some great places, had some great players like a Tyler Hansborough and a Marcus Page, just to name two of them, and a Luke May as well. But who actually did get the new job was Hubert Davis. Now, Hubert Davis used to work at ESPN. He was on ESPN uh, NCAA College Game Day. Now he was an assistant under Roy Williams for a decade, and they decided to stay in-house, and now he will be the coach. I don't know too much about his coaching, but what I can tell you is that this seems like a UC, UNC type of move. They'd really like to stay in-house, and we'll yeah. see what he does. I, I don't know a lot about Hubert Davis as a coach, but we're, we're now we have to see what he really is made of. So Yeah, I, I think it's a good idea with uh, UNC keeping it in-house because they do have an effective culture there. I mean, it has worked for a long time with Williams, um, three-time national champions. I believe two of those were with UNC. Um, it's worked. There's no reason really to – aggressively change that keep it with an assistant that's a good move there i think um but let's move on talk a little football uh, we'll get into our baseball and hockey later but football might take precedent with a big move uh one that you know, has a little bit of a connection for you and me because we've discussed this player a lot sam darnold traded from the new york jets to the carolina panthers 2021 sixth round pick and a 2022 second and fourth round picks jordan i will let you go first because you know i'm a big darnold guy so i'll let you go first I really don't think this was enough return. Uh, you tell me what your move, what thoughts on the move were. I think the same thing. I think that I understand that Sam Darnold wasn't performing by the numbers per se to what he maybe could have been. But I think if this is a guy who's a number three overall pick and you only got yourself a sixth round pick this year, but you got yourself a second and fourth next year, I, I just think that the Jets need a little bit more, maybe a first or something. But like they, they yes. kind of seem to – just be okay with what the Panthers offered. I think the Panthers are really going to get a diamond in the rough here. They're, the Panthers are a team that are building in the right direction, okay? They had Teddy Bridgewater, but he wasn't obviously going to be the guy. He was just kind of a bridge guy. Now they're going to try their hand with Sam Darnold. They're going to try their hand with Christian McCaffrey in the backfield when healthy and some other new weapons they've acquired on the outside. And their defense getting a little bit better with guys like Jeremy Chin and Brian Burns. This team is built in the right direction, and I love Matt Rule. I love what he's all about. He's always had a track record of doing this. He starts out a little slow. Then he gets that program to new heights. Did it with Temple, did it with Baylor. So we'll see what happens. Funny how you call Teddy Bridgewater a bridge quarterback, which he is, but it's the puns, unintentional puns from, uh, from Jordan Wolf over here. I think Darnold is going to do big, big things in Carolina. Big, big things. Because I, anyways, I'm going to die on this hill if I have to, because okay. this is definitely the last straw. But I'm still gonna I'm still gonna be on the hill. I think Sam Darnold is gonna be the best quarterback out of that draft class. I said it on the show three years ago. Um, I remember thinking as a Giants fan how lucky they were that Cleveland chose Mayfield one and the Giants were gonna get Darnold at two. I think they botched it by taking Barkley, who I love as a player, but I don't know if it was the right pick at the time for the Giants. I thought the Jets got the best of both worlds there. But it just didn't work out there. They didn't surround him with much. And admittedly, Darnold has disappointed in some ways. Um only 60% completion rate once and touchdown to TD rate is nearly one-to-one. -one. It's 45 touchdowns to 39 picks. 
Uh, and also he hasn't been, hasn't the best health record over there. At the same time, this is a guy who's been sacked 98 times in three seasons. This is also a guy who's had zero run game and really zero receivers to throw to as well. And this is a guy who has had a knack uh, from a couple of times in his career, four of them, to have fourth quarter comebacks and game-winning drives. There was that stretch in 2019 when he actually was seven and six as a starting quarterback. Seven and six isn't anything to get worked up about typically, but it was the Jets. Darnold was pretty good uh, two years ago for them. Uh, I, I really think that he's going to do big things there because um, Carolina, like you said, with Rule, I think the McCaffrey contract might look bad in a couple of years, but right now he's still productive. And uh, getting him out of New York is only going to help him. I, I think big things ahead for Darnold. I completely agree. It did not get enough back. How they didn't get a first is beyond me. Yeah, um, yeah for sure. I, and also, this is what this means. The Jets are banking on the fact that Zach Wilson is going <laughs> to be a stud. I understand that Zach Wilson looked amazing throughout his pro day, but my only concern with Zach Wilson is that he didn't play a lot of high-tier NCAA competition. He played Coastal Carolina, which was a really good team, and he played really well in that game. But my whole concern is that what what is he going to be? Like, is he, is he going to really be the real deal? Because, again, I know how good he looked at his pro day, but there's a little bit of concern and trepidation for me with Zach Wilson. So, yeah, it's almost like I don't, they got to really know that Zach Wilson is going to be better than Darnold because I don't know if they know that. Yeah, I, I don't know if you can say with definitiveness that he is better. I mean, they could take fields, although I don't think they're very high on him. No, I don't uh, think at this really. point, it seems like he's more so either going, he might be going to San Francisco, either him or, uh, or Mac Jones. Wilson seems to be the guy the Jets are interested in. He's got a strong arm, but again, it's pro day. Everybody looks great on their pro days. Like, I'm just not sure. They need to move on from Darnold for such a late return for just another wild card. They're not doing this for Trevor Lawrence, and we know why, because they won a couple games. They're doing this for another wild card with Wilson. I, I just don't know. Prove me wrong, Zach Wilson, but I just don't think that they – I don't know what the Jets are doing. The only part of it I can get behind is that it's a new GM and a new coach, and they want their guy. That I understand completely, yeah. but if they're wrong, then – then they're wrong. They, they, they gambled here. I think they had a good uh, a good fit there potentially. It's only really a new coach, not the GM. Joe Douglas is still there, so that's he didn't draft. He didn't draft Arnold though. He didn't. You're right. He did not draft Arnold. So I guess the, and it, it really is going to be his guy and and Salah's guy too if they want Zach Wilson. It seems like yeah, the interesting thing was we don't know truthfully what coaches think, but I did see a report that Salah might have wanted. He was okay with Darnold. Um, again, just a report, but. Is it more so maybe the general manager Douglas wanting a new wanting a new face in there? I mean, I, I understand that completely. That's the only part that I get behind. I still what I don't understand is selling low on Darnold, kind of getting played. I think uh, Carolina needs a quarterback, a, a game breaker, and that that can do better than Bridgewater. And I think they they got one for pretty cheap price here. Uh, this year's sixth and a next year's second and fourth. I just don't see how that really moves the needle for the Jets. Me either. I mean, I know the Jets signed new weapons like Corey Davis, and, and I know there maybe they have a little bit new life of them from them, but we'll see what happens. I I don't like the move that the Jets for the Jets side of it either. All right, let's talk a little baseball. We had opening week. Now we're, I guess we're already in week two. Um, a couple of things to talk about here first, but just right off the bat, explain to people, Jordan, why opening day in baseball is so special, particularly compared to other sports. It's, it's just because like, there's nothing like it, the environment of it and, and just how well the MLB kind of uh, markets it to other people. Like you just have the fireworks coming down the national anthem, people putting on the uniform for the first time. And then they go out there and, and they play and, and you just 
have this feeling of like, oh yeah, like spring is back. Like once, once baseball begins, that's the real turn of the seasons of in life. So opening day has just always been a special environment, no matter what team you like. And you're always so invested and so amped up more maybe than when you are, when you get into the middle course of the season, but, but opening day always is just so electric in every sense of it. The seasons is part of what makes it special because uh, with opening of other sports, like it's not, it's setting up baseball in summer. They go hand in hand together. And this means that summer's coming. It also happens for the kids, right? You're, you're wrapping up school. And when you get baseball opening day, you know what? The school year is almost up. Like it is, it's exciting. And usually the games, I mean, the games are typically played. It's a bright sunshiny day. And when it's a home game, it's great. Like it just, it's, it means, like you said, summer is coming and that is that, that just makes it so great. And I don't know, something about as a Yankees fan too, um, the Yankees opening day, seeing the pinstripes and whatever other you know, traditions your teams have uh, opening day is just the best in sports. Um, you know, football, whatever. I just another game. Same with hockey and basketball. Baseball feels different. I, I don't. It, it's hard to explain why. It just feels different. If you get baseball, opening day is special. The one thing I cautioned against always, though, is the fans who completely overrate opening day at a performance standpoint. Baseball is the longest season of any league. It's 162 games plus uh, three to four rounds of playoffs. One game in April does not indicate how a team is going to look in July. Or how a team is going to look in October, yet fans always, of all of all teams, jump the gun and overrate opening day. So let's try not to do that, but at the same token here, try and uh, analyze what we've seen so far. And I guess we can start off with the Mets, because they've been pretty newsworthy. First of all, uh, Francisco Lindor signing that mega deal. 10 years, $341 million. I think it was a necessary move for the Mets. And to be honest, I was a little surprised he got as much as he did, but it's nothing, it's nothing to the Mets. They got the money for it. Good move as far as I'm concerned. Oh, for sure. Uh, Lindor is a player that, that is going to make a huge difference for them. Uh, and he, it's obviously a lot of money and it's obviously, uh, it really jumps off the page at you when you look at it for the first time. But Francisco Lindor, again, the Indians didn't want to pay him. The Mets have the money to do it. Steve Cohen's the one that has the money. They pay him. He's a really great person, really good guy. I'm, I'm very happy for this deal. And I, I personally, even though I'm a Yankee fan, I want to see Lindor be successful because he's a really bright young player for the game of baseball. And I, I, I'm, I think he's a lot of fun. So Yeah, I feel like Lindor, what you get in him is more than what the numbers show because his numbers are good. Don't get me wrong. They're all-star shortstop numbers. They're not necessarily $341 million numbers, uh, 832 career OPS, 117 career OPS plus. That means he's 17% better than an average offensive player. You know, that's an all-star. It might not be $341 million. Part of what you get with Lindor, you're getting a clubhouse uh, culture change for the Mets because they haven't had his kind of sparky, fiery leader. Even on opening day, uh, I noticed Lindor was pointing out to his teammates uh, things. To, you know, he's taking charge. He was leading. And the Mets could use that right now. You're investing in that. You're investing in – in uh, you're investing in something for your fans to get behind as well. Sure. Uh, they had kind of a black hole of shortstop there for a while with Rosario and Lowry and uh, geez, who else? Uh, Omar Quintanilla, oh. Ruben Tejada. They oh. haven't had a shortstop oh. in a while. And they haven't had a shortstop in a while. Guys, but, uh, he was, was he a shortstop or was he, I know he's third base, but he played shortstop sometimes, but uh, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. They did have a black hole shortstop. And you know what this yeah. reminds and me? I mean, Oh, go Signing ahead. Lindor is the ultimate way to correct that. And, and they needed to do it and they have the money for it. So I'm cool with that. I do think it was a little bit of an overpay, but like you said, the Mets can handle that. 
Um, we'll just see how long the honeymoon lasts. If it doesn't work out down the line, we'll see how forgiving the Mets fans are to it. But because uh, you know, yeah, Mets fans uh, are very. I, 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 me noticing with the with these Mets fans more, just that they're they are so negative. But this is the one thing that so far they're all really positive about. So. Mets fans are always miserable. They're always, woe is me. This is why it's so bad. It's so bad to be us. And they always try to compare themselves to the Yankees, which. Uh, I, I don't know about the last part, but. They um, always do. They always compare themselves to the they, Yankees. They, they like to take shots at the Yankees. I, I, they, they, they try to see themselves as different to them in a different light in New York, but they do take shots. I, I am surrounded by buddies of mine at home who take shots at the Yankees all the time. So that's just because they're jealous. But meanwhile, the Mets can't win a ball game on opening day without having the cheat to do so. Uh, as Michael Conforto broke a rule of baseball. Not even an unwritten rule. It is a rule. The umpires got it wrong. Bases were loaded. I believe it was the 10th inning. Um, bottom nine. Bottom nine, excuse me. And bases are loaded. Obviously, a walk, a hit by a pitch, scores a run. You know what else scores a run? Putting the ball in play and doing something productive. What does Michael Conforto do when he gets down in the count? He sticks out his elbow blatantly on a pitch in the strike zone, gets hit by the pitch, forcing in the run, Mets win. Now, a couple of layers to this. Mattingly went out, the manager of the Marlins, and told the umpires, no, 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 he leaned into it. They had him review it. I think the determination was you can't overturn a call like that. That's a judgment call, which is just nonsensical. What is the point of even having replay if you can't overturn plays like this? And then the best part of it for me was the SNY crew. Gary Cohen, Keith Hernandez, Ron Darling. Yeah, they eviscerated uh, Conforto for this. They they, they called they, it. They called the spade the spade. They were accurate. They said this is this is cheap. This is not how you win the game. He he broke the rule. This should not be a win. That you don't see that from uh, local broadcasters anymore. There's been kind of a at some local broadcasts um, more fandom coming in and less journalistic integrity. Not all, but some. And the Mets are certainly one of the best in the in the nation at broadcasting because of stuff like this the fact that they are not afraid to call out their team when they blatantly do something wrong conforto i mean if you haven't seen it he he the pitch is in the strike zone he very clearly sticks his elbow in there and some of the replays made it look very apparent um and after the game conforto i might add says something like um oh this isn't the way i wanted to win but a win's a win you know, it just it never came off shallow to me. I, I didn't like Conforto after doing that. And it, it just that's that's how the Mets get to win after spending three hundred million dollars. That's what they paid all this money for. Same old Mets to me. I just you know, okay. it's it's a laughing stock. Uh, I mean, this was uh, this was so odd and bizarre. I don't really ever want to see something like this happen again. Um, obviously, it's a huge rule in baseball. And I, I remember seeing highlights of, of, of Derek Dietrich doing the same thing too. when he was on the Marlins, like you can't leave. And what is his reputation? It's not very high. Yes. But what I'm saying is you, you can't purposely lean into a pitch and get hit by it. You have to make an attempt to move out of the way. Okay. That's the rule. And Michael Conforto didn't do that. And he knows that. And we all know that. And it, it, it just, from a Marlins standpoint, they have every right to be pretty angry about this because they got robbed of, potentially extra innings and a chance to win the game or at least tie the game or whatever it was. But uh, th this is definitely not going to go by the wayside. I could easily see Michael Conforto getting plunked in the hips maybe, or may maybe the bench is clear. This is going to, this is going to take a next step. I, I can tell you that Michael Conforto, the next time he steps into the batter's box, he should expect himself to have a bruise on his hip because that's what the Marlins will do for that. So. Are you that unconfident if you're Conforto that you can't get a hit? Or that, you, or that your bullpen can't do this? I mean, what goes through your mind? What goes through your mind to have to resort to a Bush League tactic 
to try and win a game. Like, are you that unconfident in your team and specifically yourself? Cause you're the batter with two strikes that that's how you got to get a win for your team. You have to think to yourself, man, if only I could draw a walk, I can't do that right now. Cause he's not throwing, he's not throwing balls, he's throwing strikes. Maybe I could go in and stick my elbow out. Like it's just, it is so cheap and such Bush league. And it doesn't speak well of Conforto as a player, which the funny thing is, he does. He had had a pretty good reputation and seems like a good guy, but this was a bad moment for him. And I hope he yes. hope he overcomes it. I hope this is not an indication of what Conforto becomes. I hope he doesn't become like any kind of villain. No, I mean, either. I, I, I feel the same way about Conforto in general. I think he's a really um, fine person, but uh, I just want people to understand that like, this is a very frowned upon moment and, and this should not be condoned in the game of baseball, but I don't want them to also get as angry as maybe like what the Astros did or something like that. Cause I've seen that. And it's a little concerning to me. So I just, I want to make that clear. Like, yeah, and and should not happen. But I I mean, we shouldn't also get to that level of anger about this either. Let me ask you real quick. There's always discussion about this with guys getting hit. Should that happen? Should there, is there, should there be a better way to take this out? You mentioned that if you're the pitcher, you think Conforto is going to wear one on the hip or maybe on his rear somewhere where there's, you know, not anything dangerous. Sure. How does this, you know, how does this, uh, how should the Marlins handle this? Because there's always controversy when you're throwing at somebody. It should, it, I think it should just be one and done if they should do it. But is that even, should they be a part of the game anymore? I mean, not generally, but in this case, when Michael Conforto intentionally did something a little bit, uh, uh, definitely a very frowned upon in the game of baseball that everyone knows you're not supposed to do. As a Marlins, you can't let that go by the wayside. You got to, Right. As a team, this is a rallying moment for you. It brings you closer together in the clubhouse. So you got to say to yourselves, hey, what are we, we going to do here? Let's not do something that escalates the situation to newer heights. But let's kind of like just get even and then move on and then, and then let the bygones be bygones. And then obviously like hate each other in a divisional rival way, not personal way. So and, and- I liken it. I'd liken it to fighting in hockey. The difference is fighting in hockey is allowed, whereas in baseball, throwing at someone inherently is not allowed, but it's kind of an unwritten rule. But I still, the reason fighting in hockey exists and is allowed is because it's, it's the code. You've heard about this. Like the players always talk about it. It's if you do something wrong, read Tom Wilson, <laughs> uh, and, uh, Matthew Kachuk, another one, you're going to have to pay for it. Kachuk got his from Shea Weber the other night. And, you know, Wilson has certainly had to fight his battles over the years for actions he's done. There was a fight in a recent Capitals-Bruins game uh, where someone had to stick up for Wilson. I mean, I think this is just the natural course of action. With baseball, the key then is on the Mets not to retaliate. The Mets know. They need to know that something is coming. Conforto knows something's coming. If um, Who's pitching today? I think it's Peterson. If Peterson oh. goes – if he goes back out – and hit somebody else. Uh, I mean, now you're escalating it to another level, and now you're now you're doing the wrong thing. If if what is it, David Peterson or Matt Peterson? David. Dave, okay. If David Peterson goes out there and acts like he's the the savant for hitting a bat, I, I'm gonna laugh pretty hard, and and and, and uh, not in a good way either. But um, I should, I want to say one more thing before we move on. It's Degrom actually. Excuse oh, me, Degrom. Degrom is going. So yeah, if Degrom goes and and hits somebody to retaliate, that is just. Yeah. Now you're escalating it. Yeah, yeah, that would be pretty bad. But um, Ron Culpa, I mean, he completely messed this up. He had a chance to get this right by the replay. 
and he had Don Mangley force him to go to the replay. And, and I know Ron Culpa was saying it's not a reviewable play, but I mean, can, can Rob Manfred, who was actually at the game due to an Instagram, a LinkedIn post from the MLB, like take notes and say, Hey, yes. let's keep an eye on Ron Culpa here. Cause he, he completely messed this up. He should be in the wrong for this. He, he had every chance to go get it right. He went to the replay review, yes. still got it wrong. And then it, it just leaves the field and doesn't allow Don Mangley to actually talk to him. So Ron Culpa really made himself look even worse. And I hope Ron yeah. Manfred sitting next to the rich, the rich sitting next to the rich has a notepad in the booth, takes some notes, says, you know, Ron Culpa's on my hit list or whatever. Maybe not hit list, but he's on my, uh, in, in my head. I'm definitely Your watch list. How about that? That's a much better. Uh, it's even less than Culpa himself. It's more so just the fact that you can't overturn one of these, one of these rules on replay. What is the point of going to replay then if you can't overturn it? Like what were they reviewing? That's why I don't understand. I think that's the bigger flaw than anything. Um, but let's, We've talked enough about the Mets, and this is what they like. They like when we talk about them because they like getting attention. Let's talk about for that long of time. Now let's talk about the real uh, winners of New York, and that's the Yankees. They haven't had the best of starts for this season, admittedly. Um, they're what are they now? They're two and two. Uh, no, a couple of extra innings games haven't haven't gone their way. Um, Thoughts first, real quick, before we dive into the Yankees on this extra innings rule. I know we've discussed it before, but now it's becoming a thing. It's not just – it wasn't just temporary for last year. It's here to stay. The runner on second. I can't stand the fact they put the runner on second. He's already in scoring position, meaning it's very easy to get the guy in. If you're going to give him a freebie, which I don't think you should anyway, at the very least put him on first and make him steal his way to second or advance his way to second. Don't just put the guy in scoring position. It makes it way too easy to score, particularly for the road team who goes first when the game is tied, which then puts the home team at a disadvantage because now they got to face the closer, and now they got to face they got to face it knowing that if they don't get the run here, they're going to lose the they're going to lose the game. Look, so the road team gets an advantage out of this. I don't like the rule. I I don't like it either. I think we're short short uh, short changing games here. We're kind of trying to force the hands that have letting it organically happen. That's the beauty of baseball. Things organically happen. I understand the whole thing about speeding up the games and how long they are, but this is not the way to do it. You're not giving the team that has to come back to bat a fair shake by having the other team for like, think about it. Like in the first Yankees game, if, if Teoscar Hernandez or whoever hit that double just hit the double without the runner being on base, that game may not have been the way it was. And I know that's just the sour grapes a little bit. And that's just one game. But for me, that's an example of saying like, this is not the right way to do it. My counter proposal to this is that we do three innings of just normal baseball rules. And if they can't score by the 13th inning, then we can implement that rule to make it go a little bit faster. Then I would understand it, but we can't just start it right off the bat because that's just not fair to not only the home team trying to come back to bat, but the, the team who gets to do it first gets a complete unfair advantage and it puts a lot more pressure on the pitcher. So, yeah, they didn't, they didn't earn the runner. That's the point. Like if you're going to have this, maybe compared to a shootout in hockey, but the difference with that is those are scored differently in the standings. You know, like if you're going to give, if you're going to necessitate the end of a baseball game with a runner on second and it cheapens the game, Maybe you have to look at how you score things in standings. Maybe it's not just wins and losses. Is there an extra innings losses category and points? I mean, there might be, because for me, it's a cheap loss. It's counting that the same win, mind you, as the win in nine innings, I think is silly. I don't think it is the same kind of win. I think it is more of a cheap win. So if this rule continues, there's going to be side effects that come from this. And the funny thing is, I don't think the play the players have voted to keep it in. Uh or they didn't vote. They didn't vote it out at the very least. It's in for this year. We'll see in the next CBA what happens. Um, 
So we'll see. I know the owners like it because uh, it speeds the game up, and that's what they're all about now on Manfred. And the thing is, though, the games are still long. Like, with all the pitching changes and all the home runs and strikeouts, the games are still long. But back to the Yankees here for a point here. They're 2-3. and three. Hasn't been the best of starts. Also hasn't been the worst of starts, so I'm not going to panic about things. I think the biggest takeaway, though, for the Yankees is it is still pretty much been um, home run or bust for them on offense, which I don't mind. I think that as the year goes on, these guys have a track record of, of, of hitting home runs, and lots of them, more than anybody, so I'm not worried about it. It worries some people, though, and uh, the Yankees, their pitching has been pretty solid through the first five or six games here, which is kind of a surprising surprising little uh, anecdote that came out of that, that their pitching has been so good. But again, I'm not going to overreact to one week's worth of games. I know the Yankees' baseline is much higher than two and three, and the performance they're getting from guys like Judge and Stanton uh, is certainly indicative of uh, at their least coming out of it. They've had a couple of games in a row here. As long as they're healthy, they'll do big things. Uh, I'm not worried remotely about the Yankees, and I also love that Sanchez having a big first week. What are your takes on the first uh, week of the Yankees? My takes is that they got to get a little bit better at scoring big runs, runners in scoring position. And the middle of their order has got to be a little bit more consistent. I mean, in that Orioles game we watched together, uh, Jay Bruce and Clint Frazier went 0 for 10. That can't yep. happen. You got to, if you're, if you're in a bat at that level of the order, you got to, got to kind of even it out a little bit. I know it's only one game, but like that's a little, a little bit alarming to me. The pitching has not been the problem at all. I've been really impressed by the starting rotation. I mean, Tyone could be something really good to counter with Cole, who was outstanding in his second start. And then Corey Kluber looked kind of fine too. And then on top of that, Jordan Montgomery, he looks solid in his start. The only one that was shaky was Domingo Herman, who I'm still a bit here or there on, but the bullpen for me, the bullpen, that's going to really be the secret sauce. Like are the, it's going to either be good or it's going to be bad. And they have Justin Wilson coming back now. That's pretty big, but this, this team um, with Sessa and Loisega, who's looked outstanding, it, it's they, they got to be consistent together. I'm not worried about the offense in the slightest. I think that'll work itself out. But for me, it's the bullpen. Like, what's, what's going to be with them? I think another part of the offense that's been a little bit just, again, not typical, is that for the first week of the season, LeMayhew leading off has not done much to set the table. No. The last game against the Orioles, I believe he had two hits. Uh, and did a little more there but he also had a big uh, out and runners in scoring position and the reason you don't panic about runners in scoring position stats is that over 162 games the long usually the history is that how you hit if you bat 280 let's just say for the season you're not you're going to continue to bat 280 with runners in scoring position around there just because there are runners on base doesn't necessarily mean you're going to do inherently worse it's like we talk about postseason performances like guys who get better when the calendar turns to october like that's doesn't it doesn't work that way you're either good or you're not you know what i mean like you get a hot streak or a cold streak what have you i don't think that it's like in the yankees heads that just because there's runners on base they can't do anything you know it's it's this classic small sample size overreaction i think that they're not driving in these runners in scoring position and I know it's been a bit of a sore spot for the Yankees over the last few years, but in the grand scheme of things, I don't think it's anything to panic about. I know that LeMahieu is uh, one of the top leadoff hitters in the game, and he's already looking better. He's already got that on-base percentage up to 400. And uh, Aaron Hicks, on the other hand, he's not going to keep hitting 100 the rest of the season. Um, that's for sure. So I'm not remotely worried about the Yankees hitting. But again, I mean, you'd like to see a better opening week, if you, ideally, but it's nothing to be worried about as far as I'm concerned. But how about we dive into one of my other favorite stories of opening week, and that's the Cincinnati Reds. Because I don't know if you caught their comments, Jordan, the comments from uh, Amir Garrett the other day. Oh, who oh, said yeah, something like, um, Yes, I did. You know, let me go find the exact quote. 
because the point of, of Garrett's speech was this was after they had a dust up with the Cardinals and um, it had to do with Castellanos and he flexed on the pitcher. He was, he had been hit. He kind of pimped his home run a little bit. What Garrett had said the next day was, I want everybody to think the Cincinnati Reds are like the cockiest team ever. We're some bat flipping showboat and son of a guns. And I want everybody to know that. And I love that from Garrett because I that's what the Reds have to be right now. Small market team and a light division uh, that no one really gave him a chance to win it. I love that. We always say baseball, oh, it's so boring. It's so slow. The Reds doing what they can do to, uh, to fix that. And I think they're doing it the right way. I don't think anything Castellanos did was unjustified after uh, he was hit. Uh, and I think the whole flexing at the home plate thing, that one was a little bit over the top for me. It's a touchdown celebration. Is it? Is it? Yep. <laughs> it's a okay. touchdown celebration. Uh, it's Terrell Owens taking out the popcorn or, uh, or um, Antonio Brown flinging himself into the goalpost uh, or uh, Odell Beckham doing the whip like he used to in his first season. I think it's a little bit less extreme than that. But or the salsa dance. It's like a little bit, but still, like he was like, uh, and that's besides the point. What I'm, I agree with you. I like this a lot too. I, I respect the fact that this is who the Reds are coming out and saying they want to be. And if they want to live up to that and they want to be hated for it, that is totally fine. The Reds haven't been to the playoffs in God knows how long. If this is the year they get to it and this is how they want to be getting to it, so be it. Trevor Bauer's gone. I mean, they're, they're a bit more small market. Luis Castillo's the top of the rotation. Castellanos and Mustakas are in that lineup. So is Nick Senzel, Eugenio Suarez. It, I like it. I like it a lot. Technically speaking, they made it last year, but it was just that wild card right, round. Right. They I'm haven't so- been to the real playoffs in, in, since, I believe, 2013. Um, that was when they had Johnny Cueto at the top yeah. of their staff and they blew yeah. a 2-0 series lead to the San Francisco Giants. So maybe it was 14. It was one of those even numbered years yeah. and the Giants won the whole thing. Probably, it was 14. Um, yeah, they blew a 2-0 lead to the Giants that series and the best of five. And that was kind of the end of the Reds as contenders as we knew it. So now they're coming back out of that. I think it's a fun little storyline for sure. Uh, bat flipping cocky son of a guns. That is the Cincinnati Reds for you right there. But uh, before we close up baseball here, um hot take time a team that has surprised us so far and a team has disappointed us so far we've done this segment with other sports let's overreact now to one week of baseball uh jordan you go first uh i guess one team that i'm really surprised by i was gonna say it was the reds um i didn't sure. really expect this from them they've really performed well i'm gonna go pull up their stats uh right now but what i was saying before i mean nick castellanos is off to a ridiculously hot start uh, this team lost Trevor Bauer in free agency. They're five and one. So that's definitely what I didn't expect from them in the division with they have with the uh, Cardinals. So I thought we're going to be the most dominant team in that division, but this Reds team, maybe they're here to play. Maybe they're a sneaky, sexy team that we're going to follow all season long. And then from the disappointing side, I don't know the record off the top of my head right now, but so far it's been the Braves. Both of us are really high on the Braves and they have four. They haven't started the season the way I thought they would. I think it'll work themselves out. They have an outstanding offense with some really solid pitching rotation. They're a really balanced team, and I think they can get to where they want to be again, but I'm a little concerned to how they've started the season so far. You know, I'll go surprise with uh, the Phillies because I think the big surprise was their bullpen. It was the best story of their 5-1 and one, uh, homestand here. I'm going to try and get the number for it. But the bullpen, you know, was historically bad for the Phillies last year. It was a 7.06 ERA. That was the worst in big league history in the modern era. But 
the bullpen was much better for the Phillies in the recent series uh, to open it up against the Braves, who we just said were a contender. Uh, and they're hitting too. We knew the Phillies were going to hit. Um, they have a good lineup. The question was always their bullpen and to an extent as well, their starting pitching. And the Phillies are five and one. I discounted them uh, to be a playoff team. I didn't have them. I didn't have them there. I had them third or fourth in the division. I had them third. Uh, interesting start, five and one. It's always better to start off well than to have to come back. So good for the Phillies for getting off to a good start there. Real Muto and Harper and company hitting the ball well. And then uh, the pitching. You know Joe Girardi can manage a bullpen. That was one of his best attributes at the Yankees. Yep. Problem is he just had no one that could get an out last year for the Phillies. But getting Archie Bradley, um, the revitalized Hector Neris, you know, they have a couple more options back there in the bullpen that have been pretty good. Aside from Vince Velasquez, who did blow that one game for them. But, you know, one game not worth two getting worked up about. And then a disappointment. How about we go with the, uh, you know, I don't know what I'm going to go with for sure. It's definitely going to be the Oakland A's. I picked them going to the ALCS, and they're one and seven. I mean, I know not to overreact to one week of performance, but why on earth are the Oakland A's one and seven to start this season? It's baffling to me. Now, their closer that is paid for, uh, Trevor Rosenthal, is going to be out for a few weeks to months with a surgery that involves a, a rib removal. Um, so they're not going to have Rosenthal for a while there. And then they're not hitting well. That's the thing. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not an easy park to hit in, but they have one starter that's hitting 300 for them. Not even a starter. It's Chad Pender. He has 10 at-bats. No starter is hitting 300 for them this season. And no one has more than one home run. I know it's not the easiest place to hit, but nobody is hitting 300 in this lineup or has more than one home run. Um, Hey, you know what the A's are? They're, 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 uh, they're money ball. They have to develop from within. But they have guys who can hit. Chapman and Olsen, um, even across the outfield, they still have um, Piscotti, who has uh, not hit a home run yet this year. Mitch Moreland was added. Ramon Laureano is a good player. Yeah. Like, they, they need to do better than one and seven. Um, as far as I'm concerned, they're going to make the ALCS, which is where I had them going. Maybe a little gutsy prediction there. But, uh, yeah, disappointed so far in the A's. But now let's transition into hockey here before we uh, wrap up on our show. Uh, first off, big NHL trade. I'll go with you first because you're the Devils fan here. Devils traded a couple of guys who have been here for a long time. Oh, Kyle yeah. Palmieri and Travis Zajac go to Lou Amorello and the Islanders. Now, the Devils got a 2021 first-round pick out of this as well as a next-year fourth-rounder and a couple of prospects, by the way. So assessments on the trade, trading them to Long Island and what they got in return. Yeah, I, I was really – I wasn't surprised by Palmieri being traded because at this point he wasn't a part of the future, and I think he needed to, to have a change of scenery. I was – I called it. I was talking to my buddy. We, we both know Matt Travi about this, and I said I think the Islanders would be a perfect team for Kyle Palmieri to go. The Lamarillo's there. Islanders have Anders Lee who's out. It, it, would, it would just make yep. – so much sense for him to go there. But I was surprised about was Travis Zajac. I know he's not the same player he was, but he, he was the type of player that really embodied what it meant to be a devil. And he, he, I thought he was going to retire here, but he, he was involved in the trade too. It was very surprising. And I, I might be one of the only Devils fans still that I, I know others haven't liked it as much because they felt like they didn't, that this year's draft isn't as strong as other classes. So the first round pick won't matter as much, but I like it because That's the first nonsense. round pick, is so important in hockey that I think that the fact that Devils got it for a guy, Kyle Palmieri having a really disappointing season, and at this point of his career, Travis Zajac, I, I think it's a really nice thing to have. I understand the prospects. We don't know what they're going to be, 
but I, I still enjoy the fact that they have a first round pick. And, and I think that for the Islanders sake, this is a really good move for them too, because it's going to add a lot of depth for them to finally, maybe hopefully bring a cup to the Island. So the devils got far more value back than they gave up. And that is just, that's an absolute win. That's highway robbery. Paul Mary's having a disappointing year. A lot of my fans is not a part of your future. You got a first round pick for those two guys. They're third liners. This is tremendous for the, for the devil. As far as I'm concerned, you got much more value coming in than coming out. You've got to manage, not with your heart. You got to manage with your mind and good on Tom Fitzgerald um, for shipping those guys out that he has no attachment to. Uh, He didn't draft them or sign them or anything. So good on him for shipping them out and getting a first rounder. It doesn't matter how, how deep the draft is. Do I need to go over the list of all the guys who have been sleepers over the years? I don't even think Pasternak was a pick until 25th or 26th in the first round. And you know that there's obviously sleepers all the way down. I mean, maybe this isn't as strong a draft, but a first-round pick's a first-round pick, and you can also do anything with it. You can flip it if you have to. I don't know why the Devils would, because considering they could probably use more prospects, but there's all sorts of options. It's a valuable commodity, especially in a flat-cap league where it's harder to move salaries um first round picks are very valuable the devil's got one for guys who've been performing at a second to third line level this year who are not a part of their future that are on the wrong side of 30 that's a steal for the devils it is also i know i'm bashing it here a little bit for the islanders in the immediate future you do have to pay a little bit for all in i still don't know why lamorell gave up a first i think that that is i don't know how he gave up a former team he did them a favor that's really what it was that will it will help them I don't know. I don't know what it does for them in terms of making them cup contenders. Like you had said, I think that's a little rich for me, but it will help them. Um, they, they did, they did pay uh, pretty dearly for it though. Having said that the Islanders, I don't know what the first round pick is going to do for them anyway at this point. So by all means, give it up. I just wish maybe for their sake, I think they could have gotten Taylor Hall with that first round pick. I know I think that they uh, undersold a little bit on that, but you know, it'll help them to some extent. Um, and let's also take here, a little bit of Quinnipiac hockey, NCAA as a whole. Um, first, the Quinnipiac news, because there's some pro signings out of this. Odin Tufto, captain of the Bobcats, signed with Tampa, uh, Tampa Bay Lightning, made his first AHL game a couple of nights ago. And also Peter Deliberatore going pro with the Vegas Golden Knights. It's going to be tough for both these guys to crack the NHL lineups for these two contending teams. Um, particularly Deliberatore, they got some defenders back there they really like. Tough, though, it's going to be tough for him to crack the lightning, given his size. But if given the chance, we know that Tufto in particular, what he does is he proves people wrong. He's one of the best playmakers I've ever seen. Uh, the Quinnipiac was so lucky to have this guy, um, which Ram Peckman has at least once alluded to, might have to do with the fact that other programs passed on him for his size. Uh, the lightning are wise to take this chance on Tufto. He's going to light it up for them in the AHL with his playmaking abilities. I have no worries yeah. about that. Oh, yeah. And if there is an NHL chance out of it, eventually, um, goalies would be advised to watch out. Between him and Deliberatory going to Vegas and a former Quinnipiac foe. Have you seen uh, what Jeremy Swayman's been up to lately for Boston? Yeah. Uh, how about Spencer Knight, too? He, he's he's going to be in the uh, Florida Panthers team right there. But, yeah, Jeremy Swayman uh, – he was kind of an annoying guy to play against, but now he was very good. Yeah, now he's gonna be a more annoying guy to play against as a Devils fan playing for the Bruins. So there you go. Yes, yeah, Swayman was always so impressive. I remember I called a few games against Maine, and he he was very impressive. Maine stole some of those games against Quinnipiac early in the season, and Swayman was a big reason why. Yeah. And then just to wrap up NCAA hockey here, uh, Quinnipiac season did yeah, end. They blew a three-one lead. They blew a three-one lead to Minnesota State, and quite frankly, it was a bad loss for the Bobcats. Um, 
Minnesota State's now out too, though. Frozen Four began last night, and overtime victory for St. Cloud, who is now going to their first finals. Uh, good for them because they've been a team that has just always fallen short of expectations. So is Minnesota State, for that matter. The fact that one of them was going to a final is going to be some sweet payoff for those two Minnesota schools, and St. Cloud's the one that won that one. And then also on the East Coast, so to speak, UMass. Um, <laughs> Beating Minnesota Duluth, I'm happy for that one because Duluth's reign of terror is over. I'm I'm stoked. I'm stoked for that one. Two-time defending champs, Duluth, and three times in a row they've been to the finals. I'm just ready for some new blood. It's nothing against Duluth. Uh, They're they're a great team, but I'm glad to see uh, some new blood in there. It'll be UMass and St. Cloud State in the NCAA finals, and uh, I'd have to take UMass in that one. Jordan, thoughts? Uh, I mean, I was really impressed by this UMass team. Was I sitting with Steve and a bunch of our friends last night and looking at the UMass roster to make sure I was familiarized with myself? Yes. I mean, a guy like Norman Chow, you got the Del Geizos on the team. Why, why, why have I not liked this team before? My dad goes there. That I, I want UMass all the way. He goes I'm, there? <laughs> my dad went there. There you me. go. He went there back in the 1980s now. Let's not get mistaken. He's not there right now. But what is there right now is Greg Carvel rumming this team up to the Frozen Four ch- uh, Championship against St. Cloud State. I'm all in on the UMass Minutemen, okay? I think they got a real chance. Matt Murray was outstanding last night. Not the Penguins goalie or slash Senators goalie now in the NHL. The, the, will the real Matt Murray please stand up? And I think it's this one. He had about 25 saves or something like that. This guy was unbelievable. UMass, Norman Chow, the Delgaizo brothers, Greg Carvel. I'm all in with UMass. And I, I, I'm not even going to mention St. Cloud. I know they're a good team, but let's go UMass for my family. All right. So I'll tell you what, if St. Cloud wins this game, we are going to record this clip and play it on our next show about fine, the fact that you're not even going to discuss them. But uh, that's, that's bulletin board material. Record it. Record it. I'm all but, in on UMass. Okay, Norman freaking Chow. All right, look at him. Look at his absolutely delicious locks on his head. Okay. Unreal human being. The, the, I mean, with a name like Delgaizo, how do you not root for that? I don't know. But no, the Delgaizo has had a uh, – they had a big-time goal. I think it was Mark Delgaizo. They had such a, uh, a big one for um, them two years ago when they were playing Denver in the Frozen Four. They got into the finals, and they lost to, uh, to Duluth, of course. Um, now, though, they beat Duluth, and Denver's not in it. It's going to be up to St. Cloud State, the former uh, one seed of past years who has flopped. Now St. Cloud State has the chance to uh, finally cash in, as does UMass. Either way, it'll be the first championship for either of those schools, and that's always a fun storyline. Like, uh, like you said with Baylor and Gonzaga, it's the same oh, kind of vibe. Okay, okay. Give me Matt Kessel in overtime. Okay, give me Matt Murray with the save of the day. Just get get. That's I'm a one time UMass fan here. Okay, I'm a New Jersey guy. I don't really like Boston sports. This is the one. This is this is personal for me, and I hope that UMass pulls through. Because yeah, been, this is like uh, me with um with, with Baylor and Oregon, who suddenly became my teams. Was you, now you're a closet uh, UMass fan here. And also I'd like to point out now that UMass won last night, I believe that means in our little room, room wide uh, NCAA bracket, you that won. means you and me have now tied as winners. Is that uh, what this means? Steve, Steve said that uh, we, uh, that you won outright, but okay. Well, I'll have to, when I come back, I'll have to check. Okay. Um, okay. Unless he's weighing it differently. Cause it's a finals game. I mean, that could be one thing. But uh, either way, I got a share in it. I mean, we didn't bet any money on it. But either way, I got a share in it, uh, which is happy with me. Uh, you had a pretty good bracket, too. You were at least second in our I'm, I'm surprised. It took me about 10 minutes to fill out that bracket. You guys did all statistical analysis. I did no statistical analysis. I just 
came off by reputation itself, and UMass is helping me out with Norman Chow, the Del Gaizo brothers, and Matt Murray, okay? Record it. You can record what I'm saying right now, and if it proves me right, I'm going to be so happy. If it doesn't, then I, at least I went out trying. So, Okay, Jordan, I got to tell you, I think there's something, something going on here. The, the guy's name is not Norman Chow. The guy's oh, name is Oliver Chow. Whoops. Whoops. Okay. Wow. You what kind of fan are you? Not 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 the best one. Uh, Here I am looking at who the heck this guy is. You keep talking about his name is Oliver Jordan. Come on. Oliver, Come on. Can I get here? Can I just correct myself and say Oliver Chow? It's a little late now. I mean, there's a guy named Norm Chow who was a coach of the XFL at one point. Is that who I'm mean, of? I literally looked at him last night. Oh my god! How was wrong with me? Oliver Chow. Well, the guy you're thinking of that's name is Norm is a combined, uh, what is that now, 15 and 61 is his career record over college and high school as a head coach. So uh, nice confusion. Okay. Uh, I don't think we should send that recording out now, but um, all I'm going to say is let's go UMass. That's it. My final word on that is a That is an all-time blunder as far as I'm concerned. Norman Chow, Norman Chow. Guy's name is Oliver Chow. Just for that, I think St. Cloud State's going to win now. So you know what? Change my prediction. St. Cloud State's going to win because now Jordan is disrespecting them too much. I I did by accident, but Oliver Chow will do it, okay? I'm not going to get his name wrong again, Oliver. Do you know his name by then? I don't know. Oliver. Like Oliver Twist. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see if there's a twist in that score at the final. uh, No twist. uh, Win it. All right, we're coming to a finish line here. Just real quick before we go, the Masters are going on. We're not big golf guys, but we do like making picks. Um, Jordan, who's winning the Masters? Make it quick. For me, it's going to be John Rahm. I think he's going to come back from wherever he is in the standings, and I think he's going to make a comeback. The man has made a ridiculous shot over water. I mean, this guy is inhumane when it comes to golf. I think that's my winner. Not just. I am going to go with Colin Morikawa, as I so often do. He is the only uh, golfer that I typically pick to win these things because – he is my guy, so to speak. I don't really know why. I just want to pick a golfer as my own. And I really liked watching Morikawa. Uh, I like the way he goes about it. And um, seems like a nice, young, bright future star in golf. He's had a couple of big wins. He's had that one where he won the trophy and then he broke the trophy by accident. Uh, Morikawa, he's, he's, good, he's, good, he's a good golfer. I, I, I'm going to go with him. I mean, I don't know anything about golf, so I'm just going to pick one blindly. Morikawa is going to be my guy. But um, that's going to do it here on Overtime Radio. Hopefully we'll be back next week to discuss the Masters, uh, discuss NCAA Frozen Four. We'll see uh, if Jordan's prediction ended up being correct or not. And, of course, the latest from around the world of pro sports with baseball and uh, hockey and maybe a little basketball. Been a slow week of basketball this week with a lot of injuries and a lot of sameness going on there. Maybe next week we'll have a little more news to break there. But for Jordan Wolf, I'm Tom Krasnowski. This has been Overtime Radio. Oliver Chow.